0: to the sick and successful podcast. If you're a business owner, work in corporate, or have a side hustle you're passionate about, you're gonna want to stick around. Because I promise to ask the tough questions and talk about the things others shy away from. You know, what it's really like to own a business and be chronically ill. I'm gonna give you that push you need towards following your dreams and be the friend you come back to week after week to talk about the real things in life and in business. If you have goals and are working towards them, if you're determined to be successful, no matter what life's obstacles get in the way, this podcast is for you. Dream big and tune in. Welcome back to the Sick and Successful Podcast. This is your host, Natalie Supes. I'm excited to introduce my special guest today, but the odds have it. We both have laryngitis. So, if you listen to this podcast regularly, you'll know that last week was the first week in over a year and some mm. that there was no episode. And this is the reason why. And funny enough, Patty and I, I didn't want to reschedule because I really am excited to have her today, but she has laryngitis too. So, ignore our voices. I just wanted to give you a little background on Patty. Patty is an author and a writing coach, she's also a publishing project manager, proud memoir Memoir and she adores fiction, especially memoirs and personal narrative genre. She is so cool. I got to meet her through a recommendation because she's also a Canadian and she's like the exclusive writing coach for some of the big writers that you wouldn't have no idea that they have coaches. So
1: welcome on to the podcast, Patty. Thank you. This is great. I have a little gravel in my voice. So today I'm going to say I'm a writing coach and a jazz singer. I love that.
0: I feel like mine's a little bit worse and I'm struggling for breath. So hopefully we can edit some of that out today. But but yeah, Patty, you have a really unique story on in business and in your, I guess, personal sick, what, how you refer to that or how you um, relate to that word. So let us mm. know a little bit about you and maybe what Sick and
1: Successful means to you. Awesome. Wow, there's a question for you. So mm-hmm. writing has always been my life, whether I worked in government when I worked as a consultant. I've always written on the side of giving voice to people who can't give it to themselves. So when I worked in government, I was holding massive feedback sessions. When I work now uh, in my personal life as a medical advocate, that's really about giving voice as well. More than anything, stories, Please move me and telling stories gives us comfort. And I knew this to be true because I was an avid memoir reader, memoir-holic. Yes, I have a problem. Mm-hmm. And then I realized that it was going to be time to tell my own story when rare disease exploded into our lives when my son was 16 and it's many years now and he's doing, he's doing really well now, but it was a decade ago. And I realized that if I didn't write for my sanity, I was not going to have much. And it was also that he then as a 16 year old kid with the rare disease really felt like if we write this, then other people won't have to go through what we did. And what he meant at the time was the medical odyssey of finding the right doctor of finding a specialist of having an uber rare disease that was pretty stigmatizing, but also attracted a lot of medical attention because it's gigantism and it has visual stigma attached to it, but it attracts a lot of attention because everybody sees it in the media, sees it in movies, sees giants or people with acromegaly, the adult form of the disease. I realized that there first it was our medical journey that I was writing down. And then I realized that got getting into dispelling the stigma and talking about treatment options, very limited treatment options became another part of the story. Little did I know that at about the two year mark of going down the Odyssey route with him, it was going to be my own story I was telling, which was, you know, I didn't work in the way that I did anymore. I left government, I left my husband, I left a lot of things that I thought were core to my identity, because being his mom, and what he and his brother needed became the source of my identity then. So the story, it's interesting that something that was already my passion became my vehicle to manage how I navigated the world for a number of years. And the result was Loving Large. It's called Loving Large. It came out uh, during COVID in 2020. And it has a lot of sailing metaphors in it for this reason, which was like, I had to find my way. And it was about not making him the center of my life, but making sure I got him what he needed. And I wasn't useless at the end of it. Right. An advocate, especially advocate for a child, uh, you take on a lot of responsibilities that change you permanently and do this messing around with your identity that uh, is permanent. Yeah. Permanently yeah, changed. So interesting. It's
0: interesting. There's so many things I want to say, but it's, I've always said that it's harder to take care of someone who's quote unquote sick than yeah. to be the person who's sick. Cause we don't have a choice. Yeah. Like we, yep. we don't get to, you know, decide and sitting there watching someone you love struggle and be not heard. And especially in Canada, like, yeah, Yes, we're lucky quote because of our medical system but we're also unlucky because of our medical system agreed there's a lot of disadvantages that come with the advantages and
1: Yeah, I I can't
0: imagine just watching my child deal with all of that
1: stuff. You know, he was at this age where he was 16 at diagnosis. And of course, it was years of treatment and surgery after that. But he was at this point where there were many things he could do, which was tell me what he wanted and didn't want. And then there were so many things that were far too much to ask of a 16-year-old. So I walked this fine line of how to get him what he needed without violating his personhood or eliminating his ability to advocate for himself, which I didn't want. And what the price... Ultimately, of getting him, I hope what he needed to the best of my ability was that I didn't look after myself. Yeah. yeah. He had no choice. So I felt like I had no choice. I think yeah. that's what we do as mothers. I think it's what we do as caregivers and supporters. I see a lot of selfless caregivers out there mm-hmm. in the rare disease world. Yeah. I was
0: diagnosed at 17, turning 18. And it's interesting to look back at how naive I was and how much I thought I knew. Okay. And I'm like, I just listened so blindly to the doctors, which yes. to, to my detriment my detriment for many years but my mom was doing all the research and all the stuff and spending all the hours and I didn't believe in most of the stuff she said which now I follow you know almond milk instead of milk just the one that sticks out in my mind but she yeah. brought home all of these different milks like rice milk coconut milk almond milk I'm like the doctor said I can eat whatever I want stop it you right
1: like, of course you did uh, saucy pants
0: <laughs> right <laughs> so yeah but we when do you think of, yeah. when you think of giganticism like my thought just goes to he's a lot larger. But you mentioned he had to go through surgeries and treatments. What was that like? What did he have to... And also, how did he only get diagnosed at eight, at 16 if it's a
1: visual? Yeah, great question. Yeah. Well, first, why the diagnosis was delayed. The tumor is very small and takes a very long time to grow. It's caused by a pituitary adenoma, uh, which is a non-cancerous tumor in the pituitary cavity, and it often attaches itself to the pituitary gland and can kill the pituitary. It took that long for... For us to realize that his growth rate was a little crazier than it should have been. He was 16. So growing quickly was normal. And we had a lot of height in our family. So to see him 6'5 at 16, he was a little bit ahead of some of his friends. But he, until someone had me measure him against his brother and the growth rate of his two, his brother two years younger, I didn't see it. And I ultimately didn't see it until he developed symptoms we couldn't ignore, which were vision challenges and headaches and his joints became extremely painful. Had that happened five years later, sadly, I still would not have known it for him. So it was this accumulation and culmative, I guess it's comorbidities in a way, but the symptomology stacked up, I guess would be the best way to put it. And that was what made me pay attention. So as a 16 year old, when he couldn't play football, when he was having trouble navigating stairs and when he was having a lot of headaches that weren't that sort of Tylenol wouldn't deal with, we listened and ultimately a really early CAT scan found a three centimeter tumor uh, in his pituitary. And they had to do surgery on it? Yeah. So it was two surgeries ultimately. Oh. Get, get some, get a little bit more. They were done during one hospital stay. They got as much as was possible. The originator of the surgery that has the best success rate happened to be in Toronto. Dr. Michael Cusumano is the originator of the surgery that goes through the nostrils. That ended up being the luck of being in Canada. Yeah. And that is literally yeah. what it was. There was no other luck, really. There were some fortuitous situation, But when And as you know, somebody in Southern Ontario goes looking for a world specialist on gigantism and finds that there is the surgeon that originated the most successful surgeries here in Toronto. And one of the world experts was in Toronto. It sped up our ability to get my son treated and also plunged me into medical advocacy pretty much for the rest of my life, because I realized had I not asked some questions and asked questions for someone else, because I wouldn't have asked them for myself. I'm sure your mother wouldn't have done that research if she'd had a strange condition, Um, if it, it um, Yeah. So again, Canada was really fortuitous. Good luck. And then also offered limitations. Yeah. yeah.
0: Luck is definitely what we get here. It's, it's true. Of
1: a draw and then
0: you don't even know that you can't advocate because it yeah. feels like you can't, right?
1: Yeah. Because we feel like it's gifted to us, right? Exactly. And, and that is something I often say to people, you know, there are other options and you just keep asking. We don't all have to be mild-mannered Canadians in a system that pays for us to have what we get. Right. And that's something that I think the Canadian healthcare system has done to many of us. Yeah. Even when I was pregnant, like it was like, how do I get a how do I get a doctor? Like,
0: what do I do? I have yes. to find one, huh? Yeah, like, yeah, it's know, right. So let's uh, let's switch paths a little bit. Talking yeah. about your business. So tell me yeah. about your business. What are you passionate about? What do you do? How do you help people?
1: Wow. So voice telling people's stories, carrying people's stories. So I specialize in nonfiction. So everybody comes to me with, sometimes they already have a book deal from a publisher. Sometimes they have an agent. Sometimes they have a, a story they're passionate about. They're doing a talk on stages about it. Some of them are appearing at conferences. Then there, are and that's for people who kind of are, are in sort of the memoir side, but they almost always have an outreach element to their story. So for me, it's this marriage of mission and message. So you have something to say, whether that comes from your personal story or your, experience or personal health journey might be health might be something funky like you became a world adventure traveler because you're <laughs> a frontier nurse you know it, it might be that and then it's married to this what you can offer people by way of support advice and coaching those become the books so I work with people who are writing and speaking in those areas whether it is self-publishing or hybrid publishing as we call it or they're moving into traditional publishing and looking for agents and publishers I work with with about as many on both sides. So
0: cool. And so when someone finds you, what what are the next steps? I know you don't have very very much room. But like yeah. let's say you were to work with them. How does that look yeah. like?
1: So most people have this idea of the story they want to tell, the plot line, the yeah. messages they want to convey. It's working with them first to decide what's in and what's out. What's too big for a book and what is enough for a book. So li- like novels, like really great stories, there's an arc to a story. There's also a pace that a reader can handle. And there's how much material a person can digest in one sitting. So we start with breaking the story down into key scenes, into the key elements that someone has to understand in order to believe you and learn from you. And people don't often come at the beginning of what the book would start with. So I have them for often two or three months, we brainstorm what they've got. And I ask a lot of questions and do this thing I call story pulling to get them to tell me what they believe is going to be change life changing for the reader and then i ask enough questions to see where would it have to start and end for someone to get the key takeaways that they want and that ultimately each book becomes between its covers it becomes the writer has something they want to achieve and we work out the best way to achieve it given the way people's brains work so i do a lot of neuroscience coaching of this is how much we can take this is what you're actually saying to people you need to provide an illustration of this. Maybe you want to give someone an action item, bring the story back to them frequently. So a lot of it is this deep study of what a reader needs, but what a writer wants as well. That's awesome. And you work with them one-on-one and what else? I work one-on-one and I have a really tiny exclusive mastermind, which opens once a year, multiple cohorts. And we work on exactly that, the why of their book. And this sets people up for after three months of working in a small group and about three months working one-on-one with me, these seem to be the periods of time. I don't know what that thing is about a quarter or what it is about a season, but people usually have an idea that they could then go on and write for a while on their own. And the Mm -hmm. idea of the mastermind is this is your why let's really dig down to your why. And what I find the secret weapon there is when someone knows the why of writing a book, this is what gets me to the page every day. They can usually do it for a while on their own without a coach. And I'm all about empowering people to not need a coach for as long as they can do it on their own. Um, it's expensive. It's intensive. And often people just aren't ready. They need more writing time. So I'm all about giving them the tools in the mastermind to go away and work as long as they can on their own after the mastermind. And it's an intensive three months, tiny group. And people go away saying, okay, this is my book. They have a table of contents. They have a first chapter. They know what their message is and they really know what it is in them. They want to get out. So cool.
0: That's so awesome. And how mm-hmm. did you start this business? Mm-hmm.
1: So you you've always had a passion, but what was it like? To go Someone for- asked me if i would help them build a book and i was i can't do this i don't have the skill and of course i was i was nearly a published author then i've been writing my entire life i've been consuming stories i've been taking classes all of it and i simply started talking to them for free and said i have no idea whether you should pay me for this or not but let's figure out what i can get you and that was over a decade and a few hundred books ago mm-hmm. and i realized that my insatiable curiosity and this passion i have to connect with people was where I start. And then the rest was being really well-read and educating myself by reading books and taking them apart. I became this architect of story. I would unpack the way other books looked. I mean, sometimes we can do this, right? We'll yeah. read a story and say, oh, look what they did there. They've got 12 chapters and each one of them progresses on from the next and each one has a different theme. So I something I was doing already turned into a profession I was highly skilled at. So funny because my story is exactly the same with social media someone asked yeah. me to and
0: I was like, ah, uh, let me try. Our <laughs> business blew up. And I do the same thing with social media accounts as I dissect them, I look, I live them, I read them, I'm on there all day, all night, like not really consuming content, but consuming the
1: structure of the content and the, right. and the, and the, the data behind. The and, yeah. and I think I'm going to ask you to teach me more about this in future, which is we all think we know how social media operates, but yeah. we actually don't. And and yeah, the, the science and the algorithms behind that, that's where people need support. And, so and actually that's very similar to, for you and I is people take books and social media equally for granted because yes. the digital tools make it easy. But what's underneath it for people to have the staying power to actually consume your message? Not there's leave a, on page two. That's right. I don't want yeah. anybody bailing after chapter one and you don't yeah. want anyone scrolling and not listening to the whole reel, right? That's, that's like, This is what yeah, we don't want. Mm-hmm,
0: you're right. You mate. have about 100 million. Million books behind you. I, I do. How many, how many books do you, have you ever tried to, cause it's easy for me to count how many books I've listened to. Cause I use audible. Me but too. Do you have a like guess of how many books you've read or listened to? In the no. Last
1: so I read a book a week for sure. Personally, wow a book a week and I use Audible all the time. I, and mm-hmm. I use my I use Libby as well, which is the app for libraries. Oh, so I use cool. I use Libby for a lot of my books. I don't always purchase them. I am in love with libraries, book geek. You know, years ago I culled my memoir collection and I donated 2000 books to wow. a local a local library because they were pristine. I recently started loading as many books to Kindle as I buy because I'm becoming aware that I can't find books. So I'll go li- and although they are all alphabetized behind me, yep, they are? If, you, if you can see them, yep. The ones behind me are all memoirs and they're mm-hmm. all alphabetized. I know where the A's are and I know where the M's are and the Z's are. Wow. So, you know, thousands. If I said thousands, I'm probably exaggerating because when you wow. think about it takes seven to 15 hours to read a book, I probably haven't read thousands. But what I read for my clients, you know, I read I, if you read a few hundred thousand words a month. It's a lot. so
0: cool. I yeah. love
1: reading, but like, that's a lot of time. I guess that you're doing it, it all
0: day, right? That's so cool. Yeah. And
1: you do it at different paces. This is something people don't recognize is, yeah. and you have to, you have to reading. in social media, in social yeah. media, you have to do it. And I have to know. And I recently said to somebody, I edit at 1500 words a minute. And people were like, oh my God. So like you spent 20 hours reading my book. It's like that first editorial pass takes yeah. that. And when you figure out how much time people invest in a book when you're the writer or how much time they spend on social media media and the number of words they consume. Yeah. It's a powerful piece of math yeah, yeah yeah for when I was on
0: maternity leave I, I got into speed reading on kindle that's clever it was, it was so much fun it would be like three in the morning and it was the only thing that would keep my brain active to feed her or to stay <laughs> awake with her so it was really yeah. cool I haven't done it for a couple of years now but I really did enjoy I it. have
1: never been educated in speed reading I probably well, should well I just about that.
0: started doing it because I couldn't just read because I would fall asleep so then there was like a little button that would make it go fast and I was like this is amazing and I just I had no
1: idea okay I'm checking it, that well, faster
0: and faster and faster. And it was just so cool.
1: I love that. That's it. a great tip. Love that. Yeah. Just give it a try. Don't tell um, my clients though. Okay. Don't yeah. tell my clients. I'm speed reading their <laughs> manuscripts. <laughs>
0: Oh, wow. It's so cool to just have a conversation with someone who's really passionate about what they do and just like loves it. That's why
1: You know, people sit on their stories and I don't think everyone needs to write a book, but I think everyone can tell their story. And you know, there's a lot of talk about the power of storytelling and whether we're storytelling animals and I want to find the cliche in it, but there isn't one. The fact is that we have a loss of connection in our society. And one of the reasons we have that loss of connection is that we're consuming material not face to face or voice to voice. And I think that loss of connection is going to show up. It's going to show up in a generation. I'm a technophile. I love my tech. I've got, I have seven devices around me, multiple iPhones and iPads and everything travels with me. So it isn't that I'm not loving tech. It's that eventually we will, we will lose connection if we don't offer connection and people will consume it differently. But I think that writing is one of those ways and sharing personal story, sharing in nonfiction is how we maintain these opportunities for connection in a world that is robbing us of them yeah. by choice, because convenience is great. I scroll, I'm spending the same number of hours on Instagram as everyone else is. I'm doing yeah. it too, everyone. But you know, the loss is if we stop talking. And in my case, writing, yeah, yeah. We, have, we have to keep on doing it. And I'm all for video reels, why we're connecting that close, as close as we can get to face to face. I mean, you and I are looking at each other while we record this, and it changes everything that you can read yes. my body language. And yeah. that is going to make a difference difference. Our dependency on video is much healthier than our dependence just on digital digital transference of knowledge so it's become more important to me even in the last decade than it ever was before so true
0: at least we have that I guess when work gets stressful when everything's overwhelming when you're
1: overbooked and overworked what's your why? what keeps you going? what keeps you I hate you I hate you asking the tough questions wow (laughs) you know I'll I'll say it honestly somebody needs me somebody needs me and that's my personal predilection that's my professional passion but I know that they wouldn't I know how difficult it is to ask for help. When someone asks me for help, I honor that. And honestly, I take it a little too seriously. And I think you probably do too, because of how we're wired. But that person needs me to just get them over the hump. And I know the joy that comes from getting their book to market, getting their another chapter done. And it's exhausting. You know, and I, this is always going to be the quandary in my business is can I go to sleep tonight and put off reading someone's pages until tomorrow. And sometimes I simply have to, because my brain tells me
0: yeah. I'll be oh, yeah.
1: happy. I'll be better tomorrow. Yeah. That my why is I know what the end game is and how important it is. Someone's getting helped. Someone in a hospital waiting room is going to have this story. Yeah. Someone who's just lost their job is going to have my client's book. Someone who is contemplating quitting something or leaving something or their loneliness is going to get a book in their hands that they needed and they didn't realize that they did. And that That's motivates so me beyond belief. Yeah. I mean, it's too much for responsibility for one person. I don't mean to elevate my importance, but boy, if I think I can nudge something forward into the world a little faster, I want to do that. That's That's really
0: my why. That's so cool. That's so special. I have kind of two questions going ping pong in my brain, but the first one is I've had a book in my mind for the longest time ever. That's why I started this podcast is because I didn't think like, didn't want to put the time and effort into writing it. But why do you think so many people have these stories, ideas, and don't
1: move forward with ever putting (laughs) words on a page? Awesome (laughs) question. Well, it's the other f word fear so let me give you some of them and you can tell me if these ring true for you i'm not a writer i'm not a good enough writer who'd want to read it it's so personal i'm afraid to get that personal i don't know if my idea is original there are a million books in the world well in fact there are many more than that four million books publish a year wow. in fact but two and a half million of those sometimes some people say three million are published self-published i mean there are a lot of people that's the english language by the way yeah and much smaller numbers in Canada, and I could probably find them for you. But there's a lot of evidence to disprove fear. Yep, there are a lot of books, but people are still bringing books out every day. We're consuming books more quickly than we ever did before. But I think the real hidden reason is we don't think we're good enough. Mm. We don't think we're good enough. You know, we'll say it's time, We'll say, oh, my family be embarrassed. We'll say, who do I think I am? Oh, how audacious for me to think I can write a book. But really what's underneath it is everything in society is collaborating to tell us that we're not good enough to do this. Yeah. yeah. And the answer is even Shakespeare thought he wasn't good enough. None mm-hmm. of us think we're good enough because that's the human dilemma. We have a negativity bias. We hear the negative much more loudly than we do the positive. And I spend a lot of time being the cheerleader and the champion of people who just want to try and see if they're wrong. And And they are wrong. They're wrong that they're not enough because they're enough every day, every time they show up to the page. And that's the joy for me is people saying, you know what, this is pretty good. That's so special. It's so cool. Yeah,
0: definitely. Most of those rank true, especially like I am not like my grammar. English was my third language. I like (laughs) I hardly capitalize my eyes, you know, like, (laughs) (laughs) apostrophes, what are those, but it doesn't matter, because there's editors, like that does, you know, So if
1: you can speak it, if you can speak it, you can write it well enough to get a draft out. And from the draft, you can spend the rest of your life revising. So writing is generative. And this is what's cool. And in fact, handwriting is particularly generative. I'm, I'm working on a talk right now about the value of handwriting writing, but handwriting is the most productive way to get something on the page and test it for yourself because you hear it in your mind, you feel it in your fingers. And the hand brain complex, as it's called, has this connection that actually no other species has. We have this thing with our pincer reflex. When we write, we test what that is. Our brain is already thinking of ways to improve it as soon as we've written it. So you're only as limited as your last thought. And imagine you, your grammar doesn't matter. First of all. You'll catch your grammar mistakes later if you want to. That's just a filter we turn on in our brain. Exactly. If you can sit and have coffee and tell someone your story, if you can sit in a doctor's office, if you can make a new friend on the train or the bus, if you can tell in ten minutes this thing that captivates another person, its potential to go that long for a book exists, and it doesn't have to be a book, does it? Right. No, it it doesn't. Like I say, start with a blog post. Instagram. Instagram is the queen of this, right? that diary is diary for the, the length. years fantastic yeah. it's the right length it offers you the ability to tag it with visuals you can do it by video you can turn a story into its promotion element and it's that where is there's a
0: book a just in place. my instagram post i at one point i was i paid someone to get all my posts and my captions i don't we didn't go that i mean, think we did mm-hmm. like four or five years but we didn't finish because there's
1: so many stories yes. things in there that it's like i used yeah. to post every day for years so i'll put a, i'll put a plug in here for something that I don't get any affiliate value for. Yeah. But I started four years ago printing something called My Social Book. And what it is is it is the photography and the captions from in, for me, Instagram. And it is colorful and beautiful. And it is like looking back over my life from How the last five years. My you- social my social book is its own site. It's probably oh, my it's probably mysocialbook.com. Again, I don't get anything from them, but I order this once a year. And what it what? does, you give the the start date and the last date. It is comes in a beautiful, high gloss, colorful bound book. And I have a row of them on my shelf. So it literally means I have a library of the things I've said before. And I did this for my next book that's coming out on writing. I went and I looked at what were the things I kept on saying. Yeah. For me, the real joy was the photos were in there from my life. I've always been afraid I was going to lose the value of because they're sitting on my iPhone or they're sitting yeah. in a cloud somewhere. So that's what I suggest is that's you why, go back yeah. and do that. And then the other thing you can do is I think you can get my social book digital. And I bet you, you can find a way to cut and paste your own captions. Oh yeah, That is a book. And so there's this thing in our brain. I'll tell you a little bit about the neuroscience. So we're either responders or creators in our brain. So some people build up a book from a blank sheet of paper and those are the creators, but some people are better responders and you're probably conditioned to be a responder. So if you went and you re you found a post that you had done two years ago, and you just start transcribing it, just typing it out, you will generate new ideas and make changes live. So you're actually building up from something that was your idea. And that's what a responder does. So a responder will see a post or a caption or a quotation by someone else, and they'll build up from that. And books are born from these small nuggets of gold that we have lurking quite often on our social media. One of the things my masterminders have to do, they have to go and they have to curate their content. They have to create an archive of their content. People who are bloggers Oh, they have already got books written. Multiple, right? Because they right.
0: amount it takes to take sip, put into a blog is agreed. Enormous. Yeah,
1: I realized that now my Substack blog has become my book about writing because I probably put out seven hundred words every weekend, and I thought to myself, "Wait a minute, I've already written a book in here." Yes. The answer is yes. What should someone do who's like, "Hey, I want to write a book. Where do I start? Mm-hmm. What do I do?" So, where do they start? What should they do? Okay, here's what they should do. They should figure out what they want to say. So, do they want want to say something that that is, I wish others didn't have to hurt like this? Do they want to say, it was hard for me, but I made it? Do they want to say, I do this thing with my clients all the time where I empower them to create social media content that is about their identity, what they believe in, what they represent in the world. So this is that mission. And I like to liken this to a rope being tied around your middle and someone yanking on it. The mission yanks on us. So somebody wants to write a book. Think of what your mission is. Say you're a compulsive journaler. I love journalers. And journalers. Journalists quite often show up on Instagram a lot or show up with a blog, right? So if you're already writing in your journal, just tap into what you keep on saying and start a fresh page and say, these are the themes that keep coming up for me. And what you have there is a loose table of contents. So things that we tend to repeat are powerfully important to us. We we as humans, we only repeat ourselves when we want to be heard. Yeah. So go to your journal, go to the notes on your phone. Oh, this is a great trick. The notes we make on our oh, phone the are the things that light us up or the things that quite frankly piss us, us off yeah. and those are the things I, I I've got to remember to pick up toothpaste and then you think it's not about picking up toothpaste it's what was on your mind so that yeah. you keep on forgetting toothpaste and that is you're really triggered when you go to the, the drugstore yeah,
0: my my phone app has beautiful poems it has my goals it has my achievements it has notes and it has letters to my husband when I'm pissed off at <laughs>
1: oh yeah like you know how many things I've got here about when, when my boyfriend pissed me off and I'm like he yeah. said he said he this and is she the said worst. this. How could, how could he possibly think this? This was yeah,
0: and then of course He's he got to get it. it out of your brain. My <laughs> note app is like, if someone ever breaks into my phone, just I hope Your, day, your, your, your there. relationship's
1: over. I know. Yeah. But you see how we're all doing it. So humans are content creation machines. Social mm-hmm. media has been a great vehicle, but we'd be doing it anyway. Com- yeah. You know how um some of us have mothers that were compulsive list makers? Some of us have um parents who loved to go on and on and on at dinner time. They're cre- Creating content because they're being listened to so two things if do you, you have yeah do you hear hi mom yeah hi Natalie's mom you know so write what you're writing with an intention of looking back at it later and when you book back later see what you repeat what it is you have to say what you feel adamant about because passion has a lot of sides passion has the positive and the negative but it is fuel for what to get done so the answer is if you find yourself creating content and having a lot to say temp into that because mm-hmm. that's where
0: books start. Every book starts that way. Yep. Open up a page and start writing.
1: Yeah. And you know, I I do advocate for handwriting. It has a different brain nuance than digital writing does. And I won't rant and rave about that today. But getting it down, even if you're just pumping your thumbs on your phone, get it down. I love that so much. Pump so your funny. thumbs on your phone, Natalie. <laughs> <laughs> rant about your husband. Because you know what? If you say it in there, you won't say it at home. Well, that's the thing, right?
0: I never have to send it to him. I never do. But I also like my beautiful, like I used to write when I, again, when I was up in the middle of the night with my daughter, I would write poems about her, just like the overwhelming mm-hmm. feelings and just all of it in there. And looking back at it is like, that is so special. I should put that somewhere. <laughs> it is. It it is
1: special. And you know, the act of laying track, as I call it, the act of laying track adds value to something. When we just think it, we tend to think, oh yeah, everybody thinks that and it's gone into the ether. But laying it down adds value to it and the opportunity to generate from it, right? It's a healthy practice. Writing to heal is a real thing, everybody. It's so, yeah, it's so, and it's crazy what you'll get out there that you won't
0: in your brain. because It just just works different, I don't know. Yeah, it does.
1: It (laughs) It does because- our brains are like a bowl of fish hooks. So a famous architect taught me this once where he said, as an architect, you pull, you try to pull one fishhook and like they're connected to all the others. And this is what our thoughts do. So once we lay the track of thoughts and we get them linear, we can see them and they just keep pulling the ones that come with them. This mm-hmm. is how our brains work. They attach like ideas in contextualization and that lets us expand on them. You won't know what you're thinking until you write it down. Isn't exactly. that crazy? That's crazy. Yeah
0: you'll be able to yeah un- untangle the web once you start writing it that's so special. totally
1: oh yeah and look you're even getting philosophy out of me today <laughs> and then you're gonna say so patty do you journal i just ordered a brand new journal from a canadian journaling company and um, i will let you know if this becomes my
0: mainstay yeah i I'm- try all the time but you know what there's one by my bed and it gets used a couple times a year Not i know a more than that but my notes app is my journal so you know what you're doing it you're doing it exactly yeah.
1: and you can export exactly. your notes any way you want my hands yeah. hurt at the end of the day i'm typing been all day, you know a lot of of people tell a lot of folks tell me that yeah (laughs) absolutely I always say don't think right because thinking gets us into trouble writing rarely does even like when I
0: in the back when I was in corporate trying to pick a job or trying to make a decision like the the what are the pros and cons list like yeah it it, writing really is something else like it it helps you make decisions Mm -hmm. better I
1: I totally agree and look at me scratching down handwritten notes while we talk because you just said something so good (laughs) what did I say well it was this, let me just say this. So you only use your journal twice a year, but you use your phone all the time. Yeah. It doesn't matter how you get it done. Just get it done. Right. Permission, permission to do it your way. Exactly. That really feels important to me because one of the things that stops people from creating books or writing more is this idea that there's a right and a wrong way or a good and a bad way. And there just isn't. Yeah. I
0: have a thousand. I'm probably, well, I'm exaggerating, but I have probably a hundred sticky notes around me. I have scrap pieces of paper and I, when a thought comes, I put it down. And then at the end of the week, I'm like, which of
1: these thoughts should stay, and which of these thoughts should go? Which ones do I know? Blink, blink. <laughs> I can see you at the end of the week saying, "I you can't even believe even I thought that was important." I, <laughs> I know. I see it. You've got your lists around you, beautifully done. They're everywhere, they're like everywhere. you said, remember, thoughts are iterative. If we write them down, then we add value to them, and then the next thought comes from it. We're just exercising with well with our fingers. What's already yeah. going on in our brain? It also, you know, what writing makes us appreciate how smart we are. Too, we are smart. Humans are incredible. Right? Yeah. 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 Every time I write, I'm like, dang, that was a good post. that was a good this. Or this was a good that. Yeah. So let me throw the last question back to you, which is when are we going to see your poetry in the world? Just asking for a friend. Uh, I've posted some, very little on my
0: socials. Okay. I used to write poems when I was a little kid all the time. My parents still have one framed in their their offices, but I don't know. It's more so like of a for me thing. I've never had a poem to publish much of it. If I do put it on a social post. Post-house. Nice. yeah i don't know we'll see
1: we'll Maybe get that book we'll out of you one, one of these days don't you worry next year the mastermind i'll nag you okay I'll, that'll I'll, be I'll, the next one how <laughs> patty like nag that idea. On doing my
0: vision it. board. wait i'll tell you exactly where it says published book uh, i think it's for i can't find it but i know it's on there i'm pretty sure it's for in a year to start writing it yeah start Ooh. writing book with the help of someone in one
1: year <laughs> <my> oh, <laughs> look at that with the help of someone i love it that's so funny <laughs> (laughs) Well, you know what? We should never do something that challenging alone. And there are lots of ways to get support. And I always say a writing buddy is a great way to start. So true. Thank you so much.
0: Well, before we go, the red carpet's yours. So let everybody know where they can find you, if they can work with you, where. Oh, that's lovely. You know what?
1: I now have a great place on my website, which is Patty M Hall, M as a memoir, pattymhall.com. On my reach out page, which is contact page. There is a fillable chatty form there where you can tell me what your idea is, what you need advice on? Are you working on a book? What's got you stuck? Yeah, I have this intake. It's okay. not an intake form. It's really a talk to me. It's a reach out form. And I, I have a newsletter on Substack. And you can always look me up at Patty M. Hall. You can also get at my Substack newsletter at pattymhall.com. So that's Yay. the best way to find me. Thank you, Patty. This was Thank so you. You're bad. the best. You're what a the treat. best. Hey. Remember,
0: dream big. It's possible for you. And your next version of success is around the corner. Mm-hmm.